Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. If you want to call in, and this may be one of those days some of you want to call in, because occasionally I wake up and I think, oh gosh, I am probably going to wind up uh, parting ways with the audience on some of this stuff today. Uh, Don't be mad at me. You can call in and disagree with me. Uh, But I I think the president, uh, let me play part of the president's speech last night. The president last night went to the Rose Garden and 100 yards away on the other side of the White House. And my wife was asking me last night, we were listening to this in the car. Uh, Interestingly enough, I thought it was very interesting. CNN editorialized in their audio. Uh, They gave the president's speech and they also ran the audio of the people being chased out of Lafayette Park on the other side uh, where the tear gas canisters and stuff was being fired. You couldn't actually hear that stuff in the Rose Garden. So they layered the audio to make it sound like you could, uh, which was editorializing by CNN. But the president went to the Rose Garden. He was not going to. He wasn't going to speak. He finally decided to speak. I'm glad he spoke. And this is part of what he said. I am mobilizing all available federal resources, civilian and military, to stop the rioting and looting, to end the destruction and arson, and to protect the rights of law-abiding Americans, including your Second Amendment rights. I think had the president left it there, it was a good law and order speech. But what happened next, I think, juxtaposed with 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 what the president's speech was, I I, it left me unsettled. And and I want to explain this to you. So St. John's Church is across the street from Lafayette Park. If you've ever been to the White House, there's a park on the north side of the White House. The north portico of the White House is not the famous one with the the, the round balcony. It's it's the one standard standard tradition uh, traditional view of the White House from the back side. Really, it's the front side of the White House technically, the north face of the White House. And then there's Lafayette Park. There's a, a statue of Lafayette in the middle, and uh, then on the other side, there's the Hay Adams Hotel, and there is St. John's Church. It is called the Church of the Presidents. Every president, going back to John Adams, I think even George Washington may have set foot in there. Definitely John Adams. Uh, Ronald Reagan used to go there. George H.W. Bush was Episcopalian, and he would worship there every Sunday. And it got set on fire by Antifa protesters. And I was really aggravated that the, the media did not seem to care I mean, the media is still trying to say that it wasn't Antifa, that it was white supremacists. The, the media is in, in cover mode for left-wing radicals who tried to burn down the Church of the Presidents. It was horrific. It was disgusting. But the president comes out last night, and he says he's on the side of peace-loving protesters. There is, at the time, a nonviolent protest happening in Lafayette Square Park. Now, I realize the Park Service has come out today saying, no, 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 they were throwing stuff at us. That's a different story than they were telling last night, which makes me suspicious of the whole thing. And all the the, the reporters who are there, I realize you can say they're on the left. Uh, there were Fox News reporters there, too. Uh, there weren't people throwing things. But even if there were, just, just let, let's look at the optics here. 
The president says he's in his speech, he's on the side of peace-loving protesters everywhere, while 100 yards from him on the other side of the White House, uh, nonviolent protesters are being tear-gassed and hit with rubber bullets to get them out of Lafayette Park so that the president can walk across the street to a church and hold a Bible up. Now, let's put this in the best possible light for the president. It was 7 p.m., and there was a curfew in effect in Washington, D.C., and the park was going to be cleared anyway. The protesters were not leaving, so the police fired tear gas. The park service, federal authorities, fired park park service, fired tear gas and moved everyone out of Lafayette Park. The president then went through the North Portico of the White House, out the gate, and crossed Lafayette Park with a barrier of armed guards and Secret Service agents to get to St. John's Church to hold a Bible in the air and then go back to the White House. Uh, who thought that was a good idea? In, in, in even the, the, the best light for the president, who thought it was a good idea, particularly with the Park Service clearing people out with tear gas first, after the president said he was on the side of the peaceful protesters, uh, to, to walk across Lafayette Park to just hold a Bible in the air. Yeah, I, maybe, maybe spend more time reading it than holding it in the air. Listen, here's the problem. The president has his base. If you're listening right now, the odds are you're going to vote for the president in November. I'll vote for him. You'll vote for him. You may really like it. Some of you may not like it. Some of us will hold our nose and do it. We'll grin and bear it because we prefer his policies to the other guys, even if we wish so much was done differently. But he's already got those people. You know, so the president has run a series of ads, and he's got a great tagline at the end of the ad. It's, you may not like him, but you like his policies. And that's so true. There are so many people, and the polling emphasizes this, that there are a lot of people out there who they don't particularly care for the president, but they do like his policies. The problem is that when it comes to the pandemic and when it comes to this sort of stuff, women and independent voters increasingly don't like his policies. And that's problematic. Using the Bible for a photo op at a church after having tear gas fired off at the nonviolent protesters to clear a path for him means the president is going to win the votes of voters who were already going to vote for him. If you liked, I mean, just just let, let me just lay this on the line for you. And again, you can call in and disagree. How many of you, genuinely, honestly, how many of you liked the president doing that, walking across the street, holding the Bible in the air? How many of you liked him doing that who were not going to vote for him prior to him doing it? How many of you were like, yeah, I don't really carefully. Oh my gosh, you just fired tear gas and walked across the street to the church and held the Bible in there. I'm voting for that guy now. Do you get my point here? It, it, it's what, what does this do to expand his base? No, I got to tell you, in, in normal times, I would think that what the president did last night would be the beginning of the end of his presidency. But I actually think he's going to get reelected. 
the optical contrast between saying he was for the peaceful protesters while they're getting tear gassed and then walking across the street to hold a Bible in the air in normal times, it, it w- would have done lasting damage. And by normal times, let, let's take the Rodney King riots. Let's take the, the Ferguson riots. Let, let's let's do th- things like that uh, where, where the story could breathe a little bit. We're not in a nonstop daily change of news pace. In normal times, I think it would have done lasting damage. I actually think that the issue that is going to galvanize voters in the polls in November has not yet happened yet. It may be an alien invasion in July. Uh, there, there are apparently mutant ticks spreading through Russia now. It could be the, the murder-raping seagull pandemic of October. The, the, whatever the voters decide is going to, to make them be for or against Trump hasn't happened yet, which is amazing I mean, somebody said yesterday that uh, 2020 it feels like a season, not a season finale, but a series finale. It does. By the way, there's a story today that the the we are in the great next great extinction event. Yeah, I kid you not. But the president already has his base. If you liked the president before yesterday, you may have liked him even more yesterday after he held that Bible in the air. Using the Bible for that photo op added no votes to the president's coalition. I'm just, I, I'm not sure what the strategy was in doing that. I'm not sure who he was listening to. Because the speech in and of itself, I look, I, I think the speech was okay. He wants to be the law and order president, be the law and order president. He gave a speech saying, I am the law and order president. He is going to crack down on this, but it's just, it's it. the optics of yesterday were really, really off. I mean, the man who's not a dictator and has no power to actually use the military to quell riots in this country unless governors ask him to, took a dictator-like walk surrounded by his guards to a church and said he had the power to use the military in ways he actually doesn't. Don Lemon had a complete meltdown on CNN last night. I mean, the dude was nearly in the fetal position, sucking his thumb, crying over what the president did. I mean, all these people said, the, the president said, we're on the verge of dictatorship. No, we're not. This president is not a dictator, and the proof of it is in November he will be on the ballot. And you can vote for or against him and remove him from office. And the odds are growing on a daily basis that they can't come up with a concrete plan that the voters are going to remove him from office. And and we should be realistic about this and why I think that. Now, listen, a lot can change between now and November. He's not on the ballot until then. But what's the strategy here? It seems like the strategy is almost to have no strategy, to just kind of pivot on a daily basis. And the day-to-day winging, and I think, works against someone like Hillary Clinton, who was more unpopular than Donald Trump but probably can't work on Joe Biden. Now, again, feel free to disagree with me me if you want. You're, You're allowed to disagree. But if I could make a suggestion to the White House, keep the strong law and order tone. I think it works. I think the speech, I would quibble with it, but I think for him, the way he delivered it, it worked. Let's also be realistic here. The left is going to overplay its hand. I mean, we we know this for certain. Whatever the president does, the left doubles it, and they're going to overplay their hand to this, and, and the president's speech works in anticipation of the left overplaying their hand. But if you're going to be the law and order guy, be the reformer too. See, the president of the United States is running against a man named Joe Biden who led a criminal justice crackdown in this country, arguing that we were going to round up everyone, including jaywalkers, and throw them behind bars or under the jail. 
Many of the young black men and now old black men who are in jail right now are in jail thanks to legislation passed by then-Senator Joe Biden. And Joe Biden was vice president of the United States for eight years and did not do criminal justice reform, did not advocate criminal justice reform, and his president, the first black president of the United States, didn't do it either. And here came Donald Trump disrupting everything, including criminal justice, and signed a great piece of criminal justice liberalization reform package. And a lot of these people who went to jail because of Joe Biden got out of jail because of Donald Trump. He is the great disruptor. But we are disrupted. Everyone is disrupted right now. And people want calm. So the disruptor needs to become the builder and build something better than that which he disrupted. We don't need the Donald Trump of your fired fame. We need the Donald Trump of rebuild the Walman ice rink for less and under budget. I mean, we got 25% unemployment right now. Everybody's been fired. We don't need the you're fired guy. We need the ice rink guy, the guy who rebuilt the ice rink in Central Park under budget, ahead of schedule, and got people back there ice skating. That That's the Donald Trump we need. And that Donald Trump wins in November. My buddy Chris texted me yesterday. He said, you know, this sounds so much like Rehoboam in, in 1 Kings 12. Uh, his call with the governor yesterday didn't go well. The, the basically blasted the governors for not being tough enough, uh, not shutting down things. This, my friend Chris was telling me that this sounds very much like Rehoboam. If you're familiar with the story, in, in after Solomon dies, Rehoboam, his son, becomes the heir. Uh, the tribes of Israel get together with him and say, look, that your your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And Rehoboam told him to go away for three days, and he asked the old men what they should do. And the old men said, you know, your father really did treat them badly. Lighten the load, and they will serve you loyally. And then Rehoboam asked the young men, and the young men said, don't lighten their load, make it even harder and punish them. Your father punished them with whips, you punished them with scorpions. And Rehoboam took the advice of the young guys. And when Israel came back, Rehoboam said, I'm going to punish you with scorpions where my father punished you with whips. I'm going to tax you even more. And what happened? Israel said, well, screw you, guy. And they went up and started a new kingdom, and, and the divided kingdom lasted until Israel fell. I'm afraid that Donald Trump is listening to his young advisors, the Island of Misfit Toys, the guys who were never successful in politics and hitched their wagon to Donald Trump early. And in hitching their wagon to Donald Trump, uh, he, he's listened to them. They've been the loyal ones, and, and he's not listening to the old guard GOP. He's suspicious of them. They're suspicious of him. Neither of them like each other, but I, I, I don't know that listening to the one instead of the other is going to get him very far. I, I just, I that, giving that speech last night, while tear gas was raining down on the protesters behind the White House and then walking over to that church just to hold a Bible in the air, that added nothing to his coalition and made some of the people, and I know some of them, who they're willing to hold their nose and vote for him, but it made them squeamish. And you can hate them and you can say, well, they're not they're not true MAGA heads and they were never going to vote for him, but he's, he only won by 70,000 votes in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. I don't want Joe Biden's judicial picks. I don't want Joe Biden to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I want Donald Trump to do that. I don't want Joe Biden's tax policy. I want Donald Trump's tax policy. I don't want Joe Biden's foreign policy. I want Donald Trump's foreign policy. But I'm worried if he keeps going down this path with a a, a strategy-less strategy, 
listening to the young guys who are just trying to win the news cycle as opposed to win the election, that it's going to end badly for all of us. And that's really, really, really a problem. Neil uh, Augenstine is a reporter for WTOP, the news uh, radio station in Washington, D.C. It's all news all the time. Let me read you this Twitter thread he's put up. U.S. Park Police explaining its decision-making and clearing Lafayette Square at least 20 minutes before D.C. 7 p.m. curfew on night four of the protests. A source says tear gas was never used. Instead, smoke canisters were deployed, which don't have an uncomfortable irritant in them. And the source says Park Police didn't know President Trump would be walking across the park several minutes later. Park Police say the reason the crowd was dispersed with smoke canisters is that at that moment, officers were being pelted with water bottles. Another factor was that the protesters had climbed on top of the structure at the north end of Lafayette Square that had been burned the day before. Obviously, this is the Park Police side of the story. I'll be checking with WTOP reporters who were on the scene last night to plug in what they observe with the Park Police are telling me. Park Police will be releasing a statement later today. Obviously, folks in the White House will be asked today about the president's walk across Lafayette Square to St. John's Episcopal Church. But my Park Police source says the agency made its decision to use smoke canisters at that moment because of what was being thrown at the officers, not because President Trump planned to make an unannounced walk to the park. Park Police will be releasing a statement later today. We will keep asking questions. In theory, it's possible another agency used tear gas in addition to park police using smoke canisters but my source on the scene got a dose of smoke but didn't feel the irritants of tear gas clearly the phrase tear gas has been used widely in the reporting so okay so no tear gas just smoke canisters and according to the park police they're doing it 20 minutes before 7 p.m because of curfew okay perfect still terrible optics for the president to then at the end of his speech say now i'm going to go visit a very special place and use an, an army of, of security agents to form a barricade with the crowd so he can walk to the hotel to, to the, the church to hold up the Bible. This also does show you in the heat of the moment how much the media does get wrong. So okay, no tear gas. No tear gas. Okay. But the optics, y'all, I mean you you do we live in a shallow society of stupid people. You do have to worry about the optics of this sort of stuff. And that's, that's the problem. And, um, I, 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 I don't know who, I, I don't know who thought that was a good idea at the White House. I just, I, I, I don't. I, I don't know. It, it, it's it's strategyless, and, and that's part of the problem. So when you, I don't have time to go into this entire dissertation here with you, but you know, when you make a campaign, you outline a strategy, and what is your strategy? Your strategy is what is the flow through the calendar to get you to election day and win, and what are the tactics you deploy to bring that strategy to fruition. So, okay, your strategy is to show that you are the law and order candidate and your opponent will be weak on crime and make the country less safe. And you you want to get uh you want to increase 5% with women, 
You want to increase uh, uh, five-tenths of a percent with black voters and maybe one percent with Hispanic voters to ensure your reelection. So, okay, that's your strategy. What are the tactics you will deploy in order to see that through? Well, what are the tactics that you'll see that through? And and it just seems to me that the president's team is, is they're deploying tactics without a comprehensive strategy here. And like last night, in, in they should have thought, wait a second, the optics of this, uh, we had nothing to do with this, but the optics are bad. We, we can't now have him walk across the street. You, there's no flexibility in their deployment of the tactics either. Something's got to change. But, you know, something's got to change with the media as well. You know, I, I, I do want to encourage you guys. Uh, feel free to disagree if you want. Uh, 877-973-7425. And... I'm 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 willing to have you willing to have you disagree with me now. There's other news out there. Uh, the George Floyd autopsy suggests uh, homicide. Now there there are two autopsies, and this is somewhat confusing. Uh, there was an official autopsy that suggested initially that George Floyd, the cause of his death was not the officer having his knee on his neck for nine minutes, that there were underlying conditions that caused him to die. And then an independent autopsy came out, and the independent autopsy came out yesterday saying that uh, cause of death was asphyxiation. And then the official medical examiner came out, and, and when they certified the results, ruled homicide. So what's going on here? Well, uh, the the official examiner had to drag things out, essentially, had to, had to put. So not that most of your lawyers are realized, but there's a, there's a chain of custody and evidence. Uh, so, for example, uh, let's say my iPhone is used in a crime. Uh, that what the police and, and what the lawyers want to establish is that it was my iPhone. I lost control of it, I believe, at a Target. It was picked up by someone. It was then hurled at someone else, uh, and it was found uh, down the street from the Target. They want to they want to follow that chain of custody of who had it uh, to, to make sure it's not me, to make sure it's someone else. You want to follow the chain of custody. You, you want to follow with uh, George Floyd and his official autopsy. The OK, the police put his neck, put his knee on the man's neck for nine minutes. Uh, George Floyd said he couldn't breathe, but for nine minutes he was still able to breathe. He's put into the uh, into an ambulance. He goes into cardiac arrest. He has underlying heart and lung conditions. Uh, pulmonary uh, conditions, and he dies in route to the hospital, is revived, and then dies again. Uh, his his immediate cause of death is not from the knee being placed on his neck. It is from the um, from his pulmonary and heart condition, pulmonary coronary condition. But uh, what the independent medical examiner says is that he was deprived of enough oxygen for so long, and his blood oxygen level dipped enough. Uh, that that then led to the pulmonary car cardiac distress, and that pulmonary cardiac distress is what did him in, but would not have happened but for that knee on his neck. This is very much like the debate over coronavirus. Yeah, I realize there's a COVID-19 angle here. Uh, with with, with COVID-19, the number one cause of death for COVID-19 is actually cardiac problems. People have a heart attack. 
because their body is is starved of oxygen. It causes problems with their heart. Uh, they then get a surge of oxygen. Their heart picks up speed but has been weakened and they die. The number one cause of death for COVID-19 is is uh, cardiac, is, is heart attack. And so a lot of people are saying, well, they're overstating the number of deaths from COVID-19 because all these people are dying of heart attacks. Yes, but they would not have died of the heart attack but for COVID-19. In the same way, they, the George Floyd would not have died of a heart attack but for an officer uh, cutting his oxygen supply for nine minutes by having his knee on his neck. So that's why the official medical examiner came out last night and certified homicide as the cause of death, even though the same medical examiner had said it was cardiac pulmonary problem, not asphyxiation. Because it wasn't asphyxiation. It was just the asphyxiation was not a complete asphyxiation, depriving him completely of oxygen, just enough to exacerbate an underlying pulmonary cardiac condition that ultimately killed him. I, I hope that makes sense. I realize I'm moving through it a little bit because there's other stuff I want to get to on here. The point is that, yes, the medical examiner who the family hired and the medical examiner for Minneapolis both attribute George Floyd's death to the cop having his knee on George Floyd's neck. This is important because there are a lot of people out there circulating the idea based on the original police report and medical examiner's report that the officer had nothing to do with George Floyd dying. And that is mythology. And we should all be willing to move on from that. Uh, The officer caused the problem. Now, in relating to this, we have the protests and we have the riots, uh, and it's just this bizarre situation in New York City where the New York mayor and governor declared a, uh, a curfew at 11 o'clock last night. I have never seen – so can we just – let me pause here and go off on a tangent. Bill de Blasio is probably the most incompetent mayor in North America outside of the mayor of Minneapolis. Good gracious, the the staggering contrast between, say, a Keisha Lance Bottoms and a Bill de Blasio. I mean, no comparison. The man is utterly incompetent. I've never seen a man so willfully intent on destroying the city as Bill de Blasio has as, as mayor of New York. He's just recklessly incompetent. Now, along the way, uh, the president wants to deploy the Insurrection Act of 1807. It's actually kind of funny to hear members of the media say that, oh, well, this law so old, it must be unconstitutional. Now, these are the people who always come out with, well, what's, what's the, what's the, oh gosh, what's the stupid act that was passed in the 1790s um, to, um, how you, so there's the law out there that says a private citizen cannot negotiate on behalf of the United States or, or represent themselves as negotiating on behalf of the United States. It's illegal. And every single year, Some politician goes abroad and makes statements to a foreign power and (gasps) prosecute him, prosecute him, prosecute him. That law is, is unconstitutional. It has never been enforced. Never has it been enforced. And yet every year the media raises it as if it's some sort of big issue. It's not. It's never, ever been enforced. Now, the Insurrection Act of 1807 has been used by the federal government on multiple occasions, including in 1992 after the Rodney King riots. In 1992, after the Rodney King riots, the mayor of Los Angeles asked George H.W. Bush to send in the National Guard under the Insurrection Act. And so he did. The act has been used. And 
the media is like, well, we can't do that. No, here's here's the thing. The president can use the Insurrection Act, but there's a caveat to it. The president is not allowed to use the Insurrection Act unless requested by a governor who certifies that that governor has used all available state resources and still does not have enough resources to quell the rioting or the insurrection. So the president cannot, contrary to what, what he said, again, here's what the president said in, in the Rose Garden yesterday. I am mobilizing all available federal resources, civilian and military, to stop the rioting and looting, to end the destruction and arson, and to protect the rights of law-abiding Americans, including your Second Amendment rights. And one more from the president to, to set the context here. My fellow Americans, my first and highest duty as president is to defend our great country and the American people. I swore an oath to uphold the laws of our nation, and that is exactly what I will do. All Americans were rightly sickened and revolted by the brutal death of George Floyd. My administration is fully committed that for George and his family, justice will be served. He will not have died in vain. But we cannot allow the righteous cries and peaceful protesters to be drowned out by an angry mob the biggest victims of the rioting are peace-loving citizens in our poorest communities. And as their president, I will fight to keep them safe. I will fight to protect you. I am your president of law and order and an ally of all peaceful protesters. But in recent days, our nation has been gripped by professional anarchists, Violent mobs, arsonists, looters, criminals, rioters, Antifa, and others. He wants to be the law and order president, and I, I think that's great. I think he needs to be the law and order president. And frankly, I think there are a lot of people uh, who they've been cooped up for multiple months. Their businesses are nearly wrecked, and now these incompetent Democratic mayors and Democratic cities have allowed looters to come in and permanently wreck their businesses. The president has a winning message here if he will exercise some discipline in doing it, uh, but he can't just go out and send in the National Guard. That's actually unconstitutional. Uh, there is a there is a provision within the federal constitution that says the federal government will ensure the uh, will ensure the uh, Republican nature of the states. And it requires the governors of the states under the Insurrection Act to ask the president to do so. Now, there are exceptions there are some exceptions. Um, there have been times where the president took command of the National Guard uh, under this clause of the Constitution when uh, state governors and others, for example, during the Civil Rights era, when state governors, they, they weren't going to allow the president. In fact, they were using the National Guard to disrupt access to schools and stop enforcement of Supreme Court decisions during desegregation. Uh, it, it has to be done very carefully. There are ways to do it. The problem uh, for the president yesterday is that his staff was citing the Insurrection Act as the, the methodology by which he would deploy the police. That uh, He may have grounds 
under the Civil Rights Act, but even under the Civil Rights Act, for example, require certain court decisions to be in effect for the president to be able to move forward in that case. And, and to my knowledge, there aren't any court decisions in effect right now. Uh, so he, he may have some opportunity here. And frankly, I think they need to come up with a comprehensive strategy on this. So listen to me. Listen, uh, let, let's move on beyond. I, I don't think he should have walked across the park and held up the Bible. Let's get to he should be the law and order president. He's running against Joe Biden. He's running against Joe Biden and a group of Democrats. And let's remember, in 2012, the Democrats fired up the Occupy Wall Street movement to contrast with Mitt Romney, his corporate rating nonsense. Uh, you know the attacks on Mitt Romney, the, the, the 49%, whatever. They used Occupy Wall Street as a messaging tool to make Mitt Romney look bad. I suspect they're using Antifa right now to try to make Donald Trump look bad. And I think the way the president needs to contrast this is to actually show some empathy for the black Americans who have been affected and be the law and order guy. And frankly, he could. have you seen the video of the woman? I, I don't have the audio of the lady, uh, elderly African-American lady who is in tears because the rioters have destroyed everywhere in her community. She could go shop. They, they wiped out all the businesses this woman relies on. The drugstore for her medicine is gone. The grocery store for her groceries is gone. The gas station for her gas is gone. It's all gone. The laundromat where she does her laundry, gone. The president should highlight people like that and, and turn this on its head. If he wants to be the law and order president, be the law and order president. But he's got to couple that with some empathy. Again, he is the great disruptor. He has disrupted. Now he needs to be, be the builder that, that the Trump organization is that he highlighted on the campaign trail. He's got a way to do this, but there needs to be a strategy. It just can't be this day-to-day -day pivoting and jockeying to win the news cycle. And that seems to be that this is my ultimate frustration with what's going on right now at the White House level is it seems like that they want to beat the press on a daily basis. They don't want to beat Joe Biden. And someone in the White House who, who has a sense of running campaigns needs to figure out the comprehensive strategy to, to beat Joe Biden. Right now, it just seems like they're, they're throwing everything out there, seeing what sticks at the wall. He's got a message. And, you know, if he can get the economy rebounding, and that's another thing he can do, by the way, is he can point out that these people, they, they seem not to want the economy to get back to work. So you're allowed to go out and protest and riot and congregate in the streets, but you're not allowed to go back to work. You're not allowed to go back to church. You're not allowed to go back to work. You're not allowed to go back to a music venue, but you can go out and burn businesses down. There's a message for the president in there. There's a message in the for the president there that goes to an overall strategy. But I don't know that they have the overall strategy. And yeah, if I sound frustrated, I am because I, I, I don't want Joe Biden to be president. I don't want uh, Joe Biden to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But if this president and his team can't come up with a with, with a comprehensive strategy to beat Joe Biden and they're just playing the daily news cycle, I don't think that works in the way it could work against Hillary Clinton. Here's the problem. In 2016, Donald Trump won on a key polling question. If you hate both candidates, who are you going to vote for? Overwhelmingly, the voters who hated both candidates said they were going to go vote for Donald Trump. In 2020, if you hate both candidates, who are you going to vote for? Overwhelmingly, those voters are going to vote for Joe Biden.
Give them a reason to vote for you, Mr. President. Walking across Lafayette Square to hold a Bible up in the air isn't a reason to get anyone new to vote for you. All the people who love that you did that were already going to vote for you, and you need to expand that group of people. Eric Erickson gives you the information you need and the truth you demand. Have you guys heard about the the Antifa? Uh, no, I'm sorry. I, I want to get into Antifa in the next hour. There, there's actually a story out there circulating about how um, Antifa, it really was, it was a, a right-wing group, uh, a, a white supremacist group from Europe tie with ties to the right that claim to be into it's a bunch of nonsense i want to get to there but right now um i i do have to tell you that facebook employees are crying at facebook mark zuckerberg has taken a pretty even-handed tone in what facebook is going to do and not do related to public posts particularly from public officials He's come out and said that um, he thinks it's not in Facebook's interest or the public's interest for Facebook to be the arbiter of truth and fact. So if something is egregiously, clearly uh, disinformation, Facebook will take action, but otherwise not. Meanwhile, Twitter has decided to start editorializing constantly and start putting notations aggressively, mostly on Republican politicians. It, it's not actually uh, a bunch of lefties who are getting it from, from Twitter. It's, it's the president and the president's supporters who are being targeted by Twitter. I got to tell you, very interestingly, if you go into Twitter and you search for Rush Limbaugh, you're not going to find Rush Limbaugh's verified Twitter account. You're going to find a bunch of people who hate Rush Limbaugh. I, I tried that yesterday, actually. Uh, if, if Rush Limbaugh, I thought, was must-listen-to-radio yesterday with The Breakfast Club. And it was very interesting to me that the that I went in and I put at Rush Limbaugh and a bunch of anti-Rush sites uh, accounts came up. And I was like, did he delete his account? What on earth? Um, it, it's it's just, it, it's it's crazy. Um, I, I got to tell you, though, uh, Twitter, I think, is, is malicious and... Mark Zuckerberg, I think, has done a very good job, and it's interesting that the left is attacking Facebook because they almost think that Facebook should be theirs and is not. And the reaction from even Elizabeth Warren going out and blasting Mark Zuckerberg for daring to go on Fox News, that it it almost seems that the left's hatred of Facebook is because Mark Zuckerberg is not at their woke level. It's not that he's a conservative. He's just not in the party. He's not on the bandwagon like Jack Dorsey at, at Twitter is and, and his level of wokeness. Uh, and, you know, I, I got to tell you, I think that conservatives need to recognize that not all of Silicon Valley is the same. And I, I think they, they need to appreciate that Facebook has flaws. It absolutely does. It, it, it's a company run by flawed individuals. It absolutely does. But it's been a way more honest broker than, than Twitter or Google. And, and now, full disclosure, uh, Facebook and Google both sponsored my conference last year. And you notice I'm not singing Google's praise. Google has some, some really deep problems. 
particularly in their engagement with the right and how they handle the right. Listen, uh, you got a bunch of people at Google who think that you need all these woke people to shape the algorithm. Uh, otherwise, these views are not going to get heard. And if they believe that and want to silence conservatives, that then suggests that they want to use the algorithm to silence conservatives. So we want these people to participate in shaping the algorithm so you see their views, but we don't want these people shaping it lest you see their views. That suggests Google does want to engage in a level of censorship with access to information on the Internet. And Zuckerberg's not doing that either. So you've got Facebook employees who are leaking their discontent. Uh, their discontent. I think maybe I, did I come up with a new word? Discontent and contempt for Zuckerberg daring to allow the president to use that platform. But this is where we are as a country. You know, for example, uh, there's a butcher shop, uh, and I, I dearly love this butcher shop. And uh, I offered to advertise for them, to put up posts for them. Uh, and, and they have a, a program where, you, you know, you get like 10% off your orders and, and I enrolled in it and they said, nope, we, we can't have you. You're controversial. Some people won't like us if you do this, uh, which, you know, this is the day and age we live in. I, I tend to give shout outs for products on, on Instagram that I like uh, now that I do ads with. But this one, I would like to help this business more uh, and, and grow it more. And I will still give them shout outs and stuff because they're a great company. But they, they don't want any sort of business relationship because I'm controversial. This is you, you've got these younger millennials who work at Facebook who believe that they can uh, weave their politics into their job in such a way that only the people they like should be able to use the platform as opposed to making it available for everyone. And kudos to Zuckerberg for standing up to that and, and taking a firm line in favor of the First Amendment and freedom of speech and politicians right to tell us what they think, whether you agree with them or not. Wish Twitter would do that. Hi there, it's Eric Erickson. How are you? The phone number if you want to be a part of the program this morning, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Okay, listen, if you weren't here for the first hour, not not my fault. I'm not going to rehash all my thoughts on on, uh, Trump raising the Bible in the air and all that. You can go to theresurgent.com. You can get all of that uh, if you prefer. Uh, But... I do want to talk about the law and order president a little more because this seems to be the theme with the president. And I think the president has uh, some some help in his corner in making this case. Uh, First of all, let's begin with Tammy Morales. Tammy Morales is the uh, is a city council member in Seattle, and, and I think she doesn't realize it, and she would be appalled for me saying it, but she's kind of an ally on the, with the president on the idea of him being the law and order president. Here's what she says. People are willing to help do those repairs, and I'm extremely thankful that nobody was injured there. But what I don't want to hear is for our constituents to be told to be civil, not to be reactionary, to be told that looting doesn't solve anything. And, you know, it does make me wonder and ask the question why looting bothers people so much more than knowing that across the country, black men and women are dying every day and far too often at the hands of those who are sworn to protect and serve. You know, what's so fascinating here is that this woman, 
Um, she, she, a lot of times people will engage in whataboutism. Uh, what, what you say this? Well, what about this? Uh, she's not even going that far. She's, she's, oh, you people, you're upset with looting. What about this? It, it, but it's a different whataboutism. It, it's not even a, a moral, e, e, morally equating the things. It is the property and the vandalism and, and the, the destruction of businesses and, and lives. Let, let, let's be real honest here. When you go into someone's restaurant or their store and you destroy it and it is their small business and they've plowed their heart into it, their life savings into it, you've destroyed their life. You haven't killed them, but you've destroyed their life. And she's like, eh, yeah, but, but these people are getting killed out there. Uh, I, yeah. And then you have the historical, I can't, okay. So we have this running joke here at the Eric Erickson Show. My producer gets infuriated every time I ask him to to pull a clip of Don Lemon saying something. He just, he can't do it. It's, it's almost a worker's comp uh, situation when he's got to pull Don Lemon and he names them things that I can't read to you on the air. They are so totally inappropriate at this point that I just, I can't do it. I would be the FCC Ajit Pai himself would personally come down here with a pair of scissors and sever the, the connection that I have to the internet. If I were to read you the title uh, that he, that he left with this, but I, I got to play for you the audio. So you get a sense of what's going on here. I was trying to make the point to you that this was a made-for-TV moment. This is the reason, as I said earlier, uh, that the Attorney General came out to survey the troops because they wanted to create this moment for the cameras so that when the president came out and, and gave his law and order speech, which I said as well, again, for the cameras, that there would be chaos on the streets of America. This was a made-for-television moment. And what I wanted to say after that, which I believe to be true, and I know to be true now, is that earlier on that phone call that we heard that Jim Acosta played for us earlier, when the president said, you are being weak, you have to show strength, that the Minneapolis Police Department was on fire. I've never seen anything like this before. I said he sounded weak and scared. Those were the orders from the commander-in-chief for this very moment that just happened in front of our eyes. Why were we pretending otherwise? Open your eyes, America. Open your eyes. We are teetering on a dictatorship. We are te This is chaos. Has the president, I I'm listening, is the president declaring war on Americans? What is happening here? He's saying he wants to protect, he wants to protect peaceful protesters at the same time, sending law enforcement and military into the streets to push peaceful protesters back, to be aggressive with peaceful protesters. He is doing the exact opposite of what he said in- I I'm sorry, I, I can't listen to any more of that, that he's going to war with America. By the way, this is the talking point today. This is the talking point, that, that the president is at war with America. No, it looks like Antifa is at war with America, and you people don't want to be honest about what's going on out there. there there's a story out there that uh, it is, it's white supremacists playing, up the, playing the, the situation up. Uh, that there's an NBC News story that a white supremacist account from Europe has been banned from Twitter for pretending to be an Antifa account. Aha, see, it was, wasn't really Antifa, actually. Uh, Michael Graham, 
writing in uh, Inside Sources, uh, Americans watched in horror as protests over George Floyd's death devolved into riots and looting from New York to Los Angeles this weekend, but perhaps just as surprising were media reports of the dark conspiracy behind it. White supremacists. Within 24 hours, social media and cable news networks were spreading an unfounded conspiracy theory that white nationalists were behind the violence plaguing largely African-American protests seeking racial justice. How did such an unlikely theory spread so fast? On Saturday morning, Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry, a progressive Democrat, claimed the city was confronting white supremacists, members of organized crime, out-of-state instigators, and possibly even foreign actors to destroy and destabilize our city and our region. Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz claimed about 80% of those arrested for looting and vandalism were outside agitators, while his lieutenant governor, Penny Flanagan, or Peggy Flanagan, claimed, quote, there are white supremacists there, there are anarchists, there are people who are burning down institutions that are core to our identity. The message was immediately amplified by members of the media. Joy Reid on MSNBC tweeted out several times about white nationalists involved in the protests. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison shared the tale of a shadowy figure with an umbrella who might be evidence of white supremacist plotting. Headlines appeared in mainstream media, and when Bill Barr, the Attorney General, made a statement blaming Antifa, the Washington Post, Jonathan Capehart, complained the Attorney General failed to acknowledge the white nationalists involved in the protests. Less than 24 hours later, Minnesota officials walked back their claims about large numbers of outsiders spreading chaos after records revealed the vast majority of those charged were, in fact, Minnesota residents. NBC News reported there's little evidence of these claims of outside agitators. According to University of Miami political scientist and conspiracy theory expert Joseph Yusinski, we shouldn't be surprised looking for conspiracies as part of our political character these days. And the evidence continues to compound that Antifa is involved in this. Uh, the arrests continue to show that the young white millennial Antifa members are the ones getting arrested, not white supremacists and skinheads. Now, John Podhoritz in the New York Post has a great column. Uh, part of this is worth reading here. George Orwell's timeless admonition, some ideas are so stupid that only intellectuals believe them has been given new life by the desperate efforts of pundit scholars and Twitter blue checks to defend the violence, looting, disorder, and general monstrousness that has overtaken American cities. The glorification of mob violence and petty criminality that was one of the disgraceful hallmarks of ban thinking throughout the 20th century resonates through every tweet, every deep TV observation, and every piece of writing that casts the coast-to-coast -coast destruction and anarchy in a positive light. A Northwestern University journalism professor named Stephen Thrasher took to Slate to offer this analysis. Quote, the destruction of a police precinct is not only a tactically reasonable response to the crisis of policing, it is a quintessentially American response and a predictable one. The uprising we've seen this week is speaking to the American police state in its own language, up to and including the use of fireworks to mark a battle of victory. Property destruction for social change is as American as the Boston Tea Party. Sure, that's why protesters in New York City set NYPD vans on fire. It's why a protester in Seattle was seen carrying a strawberry cheesecake from a cheesecake factory as she sported a mask to protect herself from contagion. It's why Somali immigrants who spent their life savings opening restaurants in Minneapolis lost everything in a single night. And even as they began to clean up the debris from a business that will likely never reopen, told Minnesota Public Radio that they too felt grief and anger at the killing of George Floyd. 
Thrasher's effort to turn an act of wanton arson and wholesale destruction into an episode of Schoolhouse Police State Rock follows directly in the path of Norman Mailer's groundbreaking 1957 essay, The White Negro, whose purpose was to infuse rank inner-city delinquency with social significance. According to Mailer, quote, It can, of course, be suggested that it takes little courage for two strong 18-year-old hoodlums, let us say, to beat the brains of a candy storekeeper. Still, courage of a sort is necessary for one murders not only a weak 50-year-old man, but an institution as well. One violates private property one enters into a new relationship with the police and introduces a dangerous element into one's life the hoodlum is therefore daring the unknown the difference between the hoodlums of mailer's day and the antifa insurgents of thrashers in our time is that our insurgents are fully aware there's a phalanx of media and academic apologists at the ready who will not only excuse their behavior but laud it This both provides them internal psychological cover for the unleashing of the evils inside them and a vocabulary to explain away the evil they release. Making excuses for rampant violence has been a reflexive habit among the cognizant of the United States since the 1960s. From the Leonard Bernsteins hosting the Black Panthers at the Elegant Party, immortalized by Tom Wolfe in his essay Radical Chic, to the aftermath of the 1977 New York City blackout when the looting of entire neighborhoods caused more than a billion dollars in damage was justified in the op-ed columns of the New York Times as a consequence of a cutback in city-provided teenage summer unemployment. Ideological partisans of all stripes face this temptation every day. The temptation to believe that those who seem to be making the same argument you make but then add violence to the mix only do so out of excess of zeal. In other words, the violent people may be wrong in their tactics, but their passionate loathing of injustice simply got the best of their good intentions. That, that That's um, J-Pod, uh, John Podhoritz in the uh, New York Post. Here's the thing. These people are going to overplay their hand. They are fundamentally going to overplay their hand. That's why in normal times, the president, and let, let's give the president every benefit of the doubt about last night. Give him every benefit of the doubt. Uh, he did not know the park police were going to clear Lafayette Park. He did not know they were going to use smoke canisters. He did not know it was going to be advertised as, as tear gas. He did not know they were going to use rubber bullets. He did not know any of that. It was still optically bad. It, it was the, the narrative was bad for the president to say, I'm with every peaceful, love, peace-loving protester, and then have walk through that crowd after it's been cleared out with, with smoke um, and it'd go to the church to hold a Bible in the air. The optics got him no additional votes. It did not do a single thing to grow his coalition. But... These people are overplaying their hand. And this is something we see that Donald Trump uses to his advantage every single time. The media and the left overplay their hand because they're in a bubble and everyone in that bubble agrees with them. They think everyone agrees with them. And because they think everyone agrees with them, they think it's fair game. And they think they'll get no criticism. And the reality is otherwise. The reality is a lot of Americans will continue to see the destruction, 
particularly at a time where they've been told they got to stay in place. You're not allowed outside. You're in a freaking quarantine. And yet the same politicians who may you stay at your house are saying, hey, you want to burn the place down? Get it out of your system. We're okay with that. The same politicians who told you you can't go back to work are the ones telling the police not to stop people from burning down your place of work. The president can capitalize on this. He's got to be smart about it. He's got to have an ultimate narrative. He's got to have a strategy. He can't just go tactic to tactic, news cycle to news cycle. But there is a way for the president to win this and grow his coalition. Right now, my suspicion is, and just I talk to a lot of people, talk to a lot of you. And my suspicion is there are people who they're not really happy with the president right now. Last night did them no favors. They're not they're, they're not cheering him on. But man, they're looking at what's going on out there right now and they're thinking, we got to do something. This place is coming apart at the seams. And if the president can be the law and order president and also the compassionate president, because there is real injustice out there, and I got some thoughts on that when we come back, then I, I think the president can build himself a coalition that Biden can't stand up to. And the reason I think that is because there are a lot of people who don't, they, they don't hate Joe Biden. They like him, but they don't think he's got what it takes. And when they see Joe Biden standing on the side of the people who are burning everything down, that's going to make them want to go to Trump. All Trump has to do is provide a way to open his arms to them and they'll come running to him for safety. It's the same way evangelicals ran to Trump. They don't necessarily care for him, but they saw the other side at culture war with them and they had to go to Trump for safety. These other people will come to the independents, the, the suburban voters, they'll come running to Trump because they know he's not going to let their small business be burned to the ground by a bunch of rioters uh, from Antifa. But he's got to give them an opening to do it. If he does it, they'll come. Joe Biden is giving a speech right now saying that the president is part of the problem and we need leadership. CNN and MSNBC are carrying the speech live. I'm not going to carry Joe Biden's speech. I'm sure that uh, CNN and MSNBC will both be attacking Fox for not carrying Joe Biden's campaign speech. You know, it is kind of interesting here. The, the dude is just searching for relevance. I mean, where is Joe Biden? He occasionally gets out of his bunker and, and goes and does these carefully scripted things. And I'm just not sure uh, it's it's helping. Biden, though, it, there is enough polling out there that really does suggest that if if, if Biden just stays patient, uh, that the president is going to make or break himself. I mean, let, let's just be honest here. The reality is that the president of the United States, uh, this election is going to be about him, not about Joe Biden. And if the rioters make people feel unsafe and the president makes them feel safe, they'll go with him. Otherwise, people have this sense of, of chaos right now. And they want calm in the chaos. They're tired of it. I, I'm tired of it. I mean, I benefit from it, frankly. I mean, if, if I'm real honest here, I benefit from the chaos because you got to tune in every single day to figure out what the hell is going on in this country. I benefit from it. And I'm exhausted by it. I am tired of it. And a lot of voters blame the president for it. And I don't think he's to blame for it, but a lot of voters blame the president for it. I'm blaming China and a virus. I'm, I'm blaming Antifa. I'm not blaming the president for the chaos. I, if anything, a lot of the chaos is in reaction to the president having gotten elected. And I do think that these people, uh, as a campaign issue, 
are trying to make everybody feel like the, the world is spinning out of control. And if you just bring us back to power, we'll calm everything down. Essentially, pe people are being, uh, it's a matter of Stockholm syndrome with the left right now. And you got to resist, you got to stand up, you got to fight. But if the president is perceived as an agent of chaos and people want calm, they go with Joe Biden. If the president is perceived as the agent of security and safety in chaos, people go with the president. There's a way for him to pivot in this to win. He's going to have to move that ball forward and make that case. I think he can do it, though. There, there's just there's got to be some level of discipline here. And this this is part of the problem is the president could be undisciplined in 2016 and be Hillary Clinton. But remember, even Kelly and Conway at one point took his phone away from him so he couldn't tweet. And it was used as a reward that if he would do certain things and stay on certain messages, he could have his phone back. And it worked. They need to go back to doing that. He's got to have a consistent message. You know, you know, I think I'm going to do this when I come back. I'll explain to you how campaigns typically operate, uh, whether it's a presidential campaign or a congressional campaign or a Senate campaign or a state house or a state Senate or a gubernatorial or a city council or a county commission. Campaigns fundamentally all work the same way. And it just, I, I get the sense that this White House is not doing the things that must be done to get a consistent message to get the president where he needs to be for his election. At least that's, that, that's my thinking. And we'll see. Um, but there's a way forward for the president. And right now, I think Joe Biden has an easier path. But Joe Biden's easy path is made easy by the president and his campaign's lack of a steady, systematic focus. But one has come into view that they should fixate on, and that is security and safety and rebuilding America. And I think they can do that if they'll put their mind to it. I've got to be a little honest with you today. Uh, I, I am slightly distracted. I'm a professional, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit distracted. My, you know, my wife has lung cancer and it's genetic and there's no cure for it, but they can keep the tumors from growing. They can essentially keep it in remission with this miracle little pill. Uh, and the pill, so her, my wife's cancer depends on an errant protein that her body generates. And this pill keeps her body from generating this errant protein. Uh, so it keeps the tumors that depend on the protein from growing. It, it's fascinating science. Eventually, her body will mutate around the effects of the pill. And typically that happens two years after you start taking this pill. It's called Tegriso. Uh, she has a unique genetic trait where the research suggests that this could last for a very long time beyond that two years. She's actually almost to four years. She'll be at four years in October uh, on this pill, uh, well past the time that the medicine should stop working. And every three months we go to Emory and they do blood work and scans and uh, they determine that her cancer has not spread. And normally I go with her and these last two times, I haven't been able to go with her because of the 
situation with the show, not being able to get a guest host in uh, and and the like. And they put off the May one until today. And so she's at the hospital by herself. She's had her scans. She's had her blood work. She's waiting to talk to her doctor. Uh, and I am a nervous, discombobulated wreck every time it happens, waiting for her, waiting for the text, waiting for the phone call to say everything's still okay or not. Um, and we assume okay. Uh, so it's it's kind of it's it's kind of just uh, as a random aside. She gets these very weird side effects with the medicine she's on. Um, one week she'll have insomnia. One week she'll not be able to wake up. One week she'll have pimples. Uh, and it's just it's it's weird. And she's been having all the side effects. And as long as she's having all the side effects, we're thinking, well, thank goodness we know the medicine's still working. Um, it's just, it, it's it's kind of funny, but uh, the medicine, I hope, is still working because, I mean, we need it, but in any event, I'm sorry, I'm I'm. I'm distracted. I'm, I'm, I know she's waiting to hear her, hear from her doctor. And so I'm waiting to hear from her and life goes on around us. Joe Biden giving his speech, uh, a, a, a strong speech by all accounts, a strong speech, uh, of that essentially the president is part of the problem and we need national healing. But, uh, how do you take on national healing when businesses are still smoking from the fires set by people? Um, I'm, I don't know how you do that. And and as a result, I, I want to go through some campaign 101 with you. How, how should the president, I keep saying he needs to have a consistent message. How do you do this? Well, before I do that, let me tell you, the hour is sponsored by uh, First Liberty Building and Loan in Noonan. If you need to get into the payroll protection program, Mitch McConnell is saying this morning they will be adding money to payroll protection as people continue to stay home. So please go to uh, firstlibertyga.com. That is their website. Excuse me, for the, that is their website, firstlibertyga.com. You click the Apply Now button, uh, and you apply now. And you can fill out the application online, and then you can get your payroll in order and get it to First Liberty, and they will help you get into PPP. They can't guarantee it. No business can. No, no financial institution can. But they'll certainly help you try to get into PPP, and I thank them for their sponsorship. So... What can the president do? I was a campaign strategist uh, for a number of years. I've run congressional. I've run statewide. I've run local races in the past. uh, And I don't really do it anymore. Occasionally, I step in and help a a friend who, in fact, a couple of years ago, I guess two years ago, helped a friend. He was running for an office. And uh, his campaign manager was completely incompetent and essentially was uh, making a lot of money off of him and not doing anything. And I had to step in and help clean things up. I occasionally do it. Uh, I, I like to do stuff like that for friends. It, it's fun, keeps the skill set up. But uh, what do you do with a campaign? Well, when you do a campaign, you typically use, you sit down and you try to draw contrast between you and the candidate. We know uh, the contrast now. It's going to be the president versus Joe Biden. So what are the president's strengths? Well, incumbency is number one. Uh, youth compared to Joe Biden, believe it or not, is, is a strength. Uh, what, what's another, uh, what, what is another one? Um, a, a law and order for the president at a time right now. He, he's very strong on law and order. Uh, what, what is a, another strength of the president? Money. He, he's got money. That's a strength. What are his weaknesses? Well, a uh, large segment of the population doesn't like him. Uh, the president is not seen as very empathetic or, or sympathetic to to people who are not in his coalition. 
What about Joe Biden? Well, Joe Biden's strengths are he was the vice president and a senator. He is tied to Barack Obama. He uh, is not Donald Trump. What are his weaknesses? Well, he's old. Uh, he, he doesn't seem quite there. Uh, he is, is, is hot, held hostage by the left. And right there, you can see some of the ways that you can turn some of the president's uh, weaknesses into his strengths compared to Joe Biden and turn some of Joe Biden's strengths into his weaknesses. So, for example, uh, Joe Biden is tied to the left and he's tied to Barack Obama. And uh, the Obama administration did not do criminal justice reform, nor did they improve the lives of black Americans, even though it was the first uh black president of the United States. Uh, Donald Trump's weakness is that a lot of people don't like him. Well, okay, you don't like him, but he's law and order. So you don't have to like him for him to make you feel safe. So what do you do thematically with all that stuff? Well, it, it seems like these riots are giving the president the perfect opportunity to somewhat reset his campaign and give him some narrative focus. And even this president, for all of his wing in it, this president understands narrative focus. It's why The Apprentice was as successful as long as it was on TV. He had some general narrative overview that he was given to follow. It was unscripted, but he was given it to follow. And he bought into the idea, and he will buy into the idea of law and order. And so how do you arrange this? Well, you sit down with him, and you say, Mr. President, you are going to win re-election by being the law and order president. You are going to win by being the guy who rebuilds the economy. And you are going to win by adding to your coalition people who are scared and do not feel safe and do and, and really want the economy to rebound. Now, how are you going to do that? That's your strategy. Your strategy is to grow your coalition based on people who feel unsafe or need work. Now, how do you do that? Well, first you start messaging. Uh, Joe Biden is being ransomed, being hijacked by the left. The left are the people who are rioting in the streets. So you need to have some tactics to expose that. First, you need to get out there and very aggressively point out that it is Antifa. This is why the media is so aggressively pushing back on the idea that it's white supremacists. They want to try to blame the president. You need to overwhelm, overwhelm them with the, with the evidence that this is Antifa. Uh, so go out there and, and make the case that this is, an, as the president would say, Antifa. Go out there and do it. Go to the cities that have been looted and burned and stand in front of the small businesses uh, and say these businesses, the employees and the owners were sheltered in place by the local government unreasonably past flattening the curve. They still wouldn't let them out of their house. They still wouldn't let them come back to work. And then they stood around, the police did, and watched the building burn. And I'm going to make good on them, and we're going to put Americans back to work. What is the president's message then? Well, the president's message is very simple. I'm Donald Trump. You may not like me, but I'm going to keep you safe and get you back to work, period. And that is his message everywhere he goes. Mr. President, what are you going to do about China? Well, you know what? The Chinese may not like me and you may not like me, but I'm going to keep Americans safe and I'm going to get them back to work. And if that means I got to fight China, I got to fight China. If that means I got to fight you, I got to fight you. Mr. President, 
What's your, what are you going to do with this hurricane? Well, I'm going to keep the American people safe and I'm going to get them back to work. And if the hurricane comes in and destroys businesses, we're going to have FEMA on the ground and they're going to get these businesses back open as quickly as possible. Mr. President, what's your plan to get American kids back to school in the fall? Well, uh, you may not like it. You may not like me, but I'm going to keep Americans safe and I'm going to get them back to work. And part of getting them back to work is getting their kids back to school. And we're going to get kids back to school while keeping them as safe as we can. Mr. President, what's your strategy on infrastructure? Well, we got to get people safe and we got to get them back to work. And we can't get them back to work if their roads and bridges are crumbling. We're going to fix that too. Mr. President, what's your issue on the national debt and, and the deficit? Well, we got to keep Americans safe and we got to get them back to work. And right now, we got to deal with the debt and the deficit, but it's more important that we spend what we need to spend to keep these businesses going so people can get back to work. And then we'll deal with the problem once we've kept everyone safe and put them back to work. And there's your message for the president. We're going to keep him safe. We're going to get him back to work, period, the end. Every single time the president talks, we're going to keep people safe and we're going to get them back to work. And now what does that do on the other side? Well, remember, the American left is in a bubble of Antifa and leftists who don't want you to go back to work because they don't want the economy to rebound. So they're going to, in some way, have to work hard to make sure that you stay home. They're going to have to work hard to keep shelter in place. And they're going to have to work hard to prevent an economic rebound. And they're not going to be able to distance themselves from Antifa. Because if they do, what happens is the president says, look, even these people recognize we got to keep people safe and put people back to work. They agree with me. And they're not going to want to. Now, I, I, I'm being somewhat facetious on this part. Don't misunderstand me. But there is an element of the Democratic Party right now that was on the record even before shelter in place that something had to be done to take the economy down a notch because as long as people were feeling good, they were going to leave Donald Trump in place. So with the president's message of I'm going to keep you safe and I'm going to put you back to work, then suddenly he has a great contrast. Oh, look, these Democrats want you to stay sheltering in place because they don't want you to go back to work. Oh, look, these Democrats, they're not condemning the violence and the rights because they don't want you to feel safe. Oh, look, these people aren't taking a strong position on law and order because they don't want you to go back to work and they don't want you to feel safe. Oh, look at what the Democrats are doing. And every single thing can be juxtaposed to that. It is a message the president can use. And it's what he needs to use if he wants to get reelected instead of this day-to-day -day trying to own the news cycle. If you're going to try to own the news cycle, own it with a consistent message. I'm going to keep you safe and I'm going to put you back to work. You own the news cycle that day. I want to play for you this, this. This is going viral on the left and the right. It's Tucker Carlson railing on Jared Kushner and Donald Trump uh, and the advice the president is getting. Listen to this. Some key advisors around the president don't seem to understand this or the gravity of the moment. No matter what happens, they'll tell you, our voters aren't going anywhere. The trailer parks are rock solid. What choice do they have? They've got to vote for us. Jared Kushner, for one, has made that point out loud. No one has more contempt for Donald Trump's voters than Jared Kushner does, and no one expresses it more frequently. In 2016, Donald Trump ran as a law and order candidate because he meant it, and his views remain fundamentally unchanged today. But the president's famously sharp instincts, the ones that won him the presidency almost four years ago, have been since subverted at every level by Jared Kushner. This is true on immigration, on foreign policy, and especially on law enforcement. 
As crime in this country continues to rise, Jared Kushner has led a highly aggressive effort to let more criminals out of prison and back onto the streets. This is reckless. At this moment in time, it's insane. It continues to happen. The president seems to sense this. At times, he seems aware he's being led in the wrong direction. He often derides Kushner as a liberal, and that's correct. Kushner is. But Kushner has convinced the president that throwing open the prisons is the key to winning African-American votes in the fall and that those votes are essential to his reelection. Several times over the past few days, the president has signaled that he would very much like to crack down on rioters. That is his instinct. If you've watched him, you believe it. But every time he has been talked out of it by Jared Kushner and by aides that Kushner has hired and controls. Kushner's assumption apparently is that African-American voters like looting. That is wrong. Normal Americans of all colors hate looting. Obviously, why wouldn't they hate looting? They're decent people. Yeah, you know, every time I hear a story about Jared Kushner, it's not a flattering story from conservatives. Every time I hear a story about Kushner from conservatives who interact with him, uh, they always feel like he's giving them lip service and platitude. And it's, it's I think, interesting that Tucker Carlson decides to go straight there because he knows the president watches the show. Uh, the president watches Tucker Carlson on a regular basis. And he also knows that the president has some skepticism of Kushner's instincts. There have been a number of stories out uh, in reliable places with reliable sources who actually point out that the president has in the past joked about Kushner uh, and his lack of political instincts. So for Tucker to be doing that last night, I think, is opening the opening the gate for the president to to be a legitimately law and order president. I, I would disagree with him to some degree on the criminal justice reform angle because I do think that the president can use that along with law and order to be law and order but also a reformer. And he can expand his coalition by doing so. I still think if the president got half a percentage point, just half a percentage point more, of black voters, he grows his coalition and he can afford to lose some of the suburban white uh, moderates who just, they, they like his policies, but they don't like his tone and they'll vote against him because of his tone. He could potentially do that. But if he's going to be the law and order president, uh, make it consistent. This can't be an abandoned theme. It's got to be something that goes all the way through the election. All right. I, I got to tell you, um, I find it somewhat funny to see everybody rushing out now uh, from the media after several days of essentially celebrating protests to suddenly say, oh my gosh, COVID-19. It, it, it uh, it's predictable. Uh, by the way, remember the, the scientific paper that uh, said masks don't work? Because uh, if you cough through them onto a Petri dish, some of, the, some of the viral RNA gets through. That was actually a, a scientific paper. It's now been retracted by the authors saying they got it wrong. Uh, turns out masks actually are pretty um, pretty good at keeping the virus from spreading. Um, okay. By the way, Ben Shapiro just put this on Twitter. You can't simultaneously pitch the idea that America is irredeemably racist and corrupt and evil and the idea that this will be fixed by voting for an octogenarian white man who co-sponsored the 1994 crime bill. Fair point. Um, in any of it, we, we're, we're in this now all of a sudden we're in a freak out by the media that, oh, my gosh, 
What if the virus starts spreading again? There's this uh, left-wing site called The Root. Uh, it's a fairly, fairly nasty site, uh, but by the, the Gizmodo gang and whatnot, I forget, I guess someone owns them now. I can't remember who, but, but I mean, they, they just, it's bizarre. Uh, some of the stuff you read there, but, uh, they, they got this over the weekend, tens of thousands of protesters demanded accountability from law enforcement and government officials over their collective disregard for black lives. But many who protested and many more who stayed at home felt conflicted about performing a necessary act of civil demonstration with a deadly contagious disease still sweeping the nation. Public health experts, protest organizers, and public officials cautioned protesters to wear masks and practice social distancing as much as they could. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms of Atlanta told protesters to get tested for COVID-19 after attending protests, pointing out the pandemic is killing black and brown people at higher numbers in Metro Atlanta. She told CNN's Jake Tapper on Sunday she's extremely concerned about spikes in the coronavirus. As The Atlantic explains, it's difficult to practice good social distancing measures during mass demonstrations for all the obvious reasons. Chanting, close proximity to other protesters on city streets and sidewalks, but also due to aggressive police responses intended to control the demonstrations from The Atlantic. The virus seems to spread the most when people yell, sneeze, or cough, as in tear gas inhalation. It is transmitted most efficiently in crowds and large gatherings, and research has found that just a few contagious people can infect hundreds of susceptible people around them. The virus can spread especially easy in small, cramped places such as police vans and jails. <laughs> a Harvard-based public health researcher, Mark Schreim, told the Atlantic writer Robinson Meyer, quote, I don't think there's a question of whether there will be spikes in cases in 10 to 14 days. With so many protests happening, they're going to get so much bigger. I don't think it's a question of if, but when and where. <gasps> Are we all going to be on lockdown again because of the protesters? I think at this point it's safe to let people come out. I mean, to tell people you can't come out and go back to work, but we're going to allow people to burn down your business is a bit absurd. And that's essentially what Democratic mayors and Democratic governors are doing. Uh, and I don't think it's going to work for them any longer. I think people are ready to come out anyway, and this will just add to it. Man, y'all, I, I just so on Instagram today, everybody's just putting up uh, blank black square pictures uh, as as. I don't know. I guess uh, solidarity, uh, protest, George Floyd. I, I I put up one that just the scripture from John chapter one. Uh, the the darkness cannot overcome the light. Um, and but I I noticed in there people were like, so I was like, what is this, Philip? So we we live stream the show, and then Philip will cut up clips and put them on Instagram for people to just kind of promote the show and all. And I thought, Oh my gosh, my head is huge in this the way it was cropped. Um, but that's okay. All right. Uh, we got, we got other stuff that we need to talk about. Um, including, I, I gotta say the, the, the 2020 season finale or series finale of planet earth is just where we seem to be headed. What a, what a bizarre, thing um so we now have there's a story out up uh, my buddy where let, let me find this my buddy Britt cochran sent this to me here we go uh you know we went from a global pandemic to murder hornets to now the daily mail has this story uh headline 
invasion of mutant blood-sucking ticks hits Russia with hospitals running out of vaccines to treat bite victims. The mutant tick is said to combine the worst qualities of two common types of Russian tick. The discovery comes amid swarms of ticks said to be caused by warmer weather in one region of Siberia. Reports say there are 428 times more ticks than usual. Concerns raised over hospitals running out of vaccines to treat bite victims. Uh, A new mutant blood-sucking tick has been discovered in Russia amid a surge of tick bite victims, according to official government papers. In one region of Siberia, Uh, There is this massive uptick. The swarm has also sparked growing fears of hospitals of the sparsely populated Siberia, running out of vaccines and medications for the types of diseases which ticks can inflict on the humans they bite. These include encephalitis, an inflammation of the brain, which is estimated to have killed more than 150,000 in 2015 and more debilitating if untreated Lyme disease. The scale of the swarm has left some hospitals already stretched with rising numbers of coronavirus deaths and infections without vaccines and medications. In the Krasnovarsk region in central Russia, medics report 8,215 tick bite cases, including 2,125 involving children. The suburbs of Krasnovarsk is, are infested with 214 ticks per square kilometer, compared with a safe figure of 0.5. Almost 2% carry tick-borne viral encephalitis, which can lead to permanent brain damage. With the third capable of passing on tick-borne borreliosis or Lyme disease, attacking the joints, heart, and nervous system. Uh, That's it. Uh, Hybrid mutant ticks. Don't go outside. By the way, I highly recommend, I, I I was pitching this. This is not an ad. I'm just going to tell you, if you've never used bug-free backyard, you probably should. It's by Cutter. Uh, we use it in our yard. You, you you attach it to your hose, then you spray it all over your yard, and it gets rid of the mosquitoes and the ticks. Gets rid of the ticks. We've got ticks in our yard. So that that's that's Russia. Well, now, hang on a second. Hang on. That that's We've gone from that to, wait, there are multiple news outlets now with this. Here is uh, the Huffington Post. The extinction crisis is accelerating. New study finds the sixth mass extinction in Earth's history is accelerating as humans rapidly and relentlessly destroy the natural world, according to a new study looking at the loss of terrestrial vertebrae species. And the crisis poses an existential threat not only to thousands of animal and plant species, but to human civilization as well. The analysis published Monday in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences comes as nations around the globe reel from the coronavirus pandemic rooted in environmental destruction and the latest novel infectious disease to leap from animals to humans with devastating consequences. Researchers examined data on more than 29,000 species of amphibians, birds, mammals, and reptiles and found that more than 500 of them, 1.7%, are on the brink of extinction with populations of fewer than a thousand individuals. More than half of those species have populations below 250. They found the ongoing sixth mass extinction may be the most serious environmental threat to the persistence of civilization because it is irreversible. 
Thousands of populations of critically endangered vertebrae animal species have been lost in a century, indicating the sixth mass extinction in human-caused and accelerating. One reason is that human pressure on natural ecosystems continues to mount. The authors point to COVID-19 as the most recent example and stress that their results reemphasize the extreme urgency of taking much expanded worldwide action to save wild species and humanity's critical life support systems. Oh, I, oh, I nearly said something bad. Now, wait, CBS News has more headline with more species at risk of extinction. Study warns of biological annihilation. In recent months, the global pandemic has illuminated how mismanagement of wild animals and natural ecosystems can threaten human health and even the stability of society. Now, a new study from Stanford University issues a dire warning, concluding the extinction rate is likely much greater than previously thought. And if we don't reverse course, the consequences for humanity will be unimaginable. It's an update from a 2015 paper from the same authors, which widely declared we have now entered the era of Earth's sixth mass extinction. A headline, CNN, the sixth mass extinction is happening faster than expected. Scientists say it's our fault. And then their science daily. Headline, loss of land-based vertebrae is accelerating. Analysis of thousands of vertebrae species reveals that extinction rates are likely much faster than previously thought. The researchers call for immediate global action, such as a ban on the wildlife trade to slow, not stop, but slow mass extinctions. Y'all, I, 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 I gotta tell you, um, oh wait, hang on, it's Paul Ehrlich. It's Paul Ehrlich. Remember, Paul Ehrlich is also the guy who told us that we were all going to run out of oil and 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 everything else. Kind of kind of left that out of the major headlines. All of you you media outlets did you? You went right to the salacious of we're all going to die. Paul Ehrlich is the guy you will recall who said that we we were entering a period in the 1960s and 70s where we were all going to run out of oil and we were going to starve to death. Notice how none of the major news outlets covering this pointed out it was a Paul Ehrlich study. Paul Ehrlich was the man who argued that uh, all of our commodities and whatnot were going to be um, be amplified and, and outrageously priced, and someone bet him uh, that the cost of, for example, iron ore would actually be less with inflation in uh, the 2000s than it was in the 1960s. And a, that guy turned out to be right, and Ehrlich lost the bet. Ehrlich wrote the book The Population Bomb. In the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now, he wrote. Among the solutions he suggested in the book was population control, including various forms of coercion, such as eliminating tax benefits for having additional children to be used if voluntary methods were to fail. Ehrlich was criticized. Ronald Bailey turned him an irrepressible doomster. Ehrlich acknowledged some of what he predicted had not occurred, but he has stood by his predictions the whole way through. Um, wow. Uh, yeah, here it is. Here it is. Julian Simon, a cornucopian economist, argued that overpopulation is not a problem as such and that humanity will adapt to changing conditions. Simon argued that eventually human creativity will improve living standards and that most resources were replaced. 
Simon stated that over hundreds of years, the prices of virtually all commodities have decreased significantly and persistently. Ehrlich terms Simon, the proponent of a space-age cargo cult of economists, convinced that human creativity and ingenuity would create substitutes for scarce resources and reasserted the idea that population growth was outstripping the Earth's supply of food, fresh water, and minerals. The exchange resulted in the Simon-Ehrlich wager, a bet about the trend of prices for resources during a 10-year period that was made with Simon in 1980. Ehrlich was allowed to choose 10 commodities that he predicted would become scarce and thus increase in price. Ehrlich chose mostly metals and lost the bet. As their average price decreased by about 30% in the next 10 years, Simon and Ehrlich could not agree about the terms of a second bet. Notice again, that this is so important. So you've got, you've got uh, these three major publications, the Huffington Post, CBS News, and CNN all running. And, and let, me, let me pull these back up. I, I got them bookmarked here. I want to pull them all back up. Um, Let's see, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. What? Well, you never even, wait a second. You don't even read that Paul Ehrlich is responsible. With CNN, oh my goodness, with, with, with um, sorry, with CBS News. You got to go one, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifty, sixteen paragraphs in, and it doesn't even identify him as an author of the study. Sixteen paragraphs in. And it doesn't identify him as the author of the study. Now, now, what about what about CNN? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Where where is up? Oh, up? Oh, what I miss? I yep. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen paragraphs in. And they don't mention him as one of the researchers either, which is fascinating. You have to go to Science Daily. Science Daily. In 2015, Stanford biologist Paul Ehrlich co-authored a study declaring the world's sixth math extinction was underway. Five years later, Ehrlich and colleagues at other institutions have a grim update. The extinction rate is likely much higher than previously thought and is eroding nature's ability to provide vital services to people. Their new paper, published this week in Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, indicates the wildlife trade and others uh, and other human impacts have wiped out hundreds of species and pushed more to the brink of extinction at an unprecedented rate. For perspective, scientists estimate that the entire 20th century, at least 543 land vertebrate species went extinct. Ehrlich and his co-authors estimate that nearly the same number of species are likely to go extinct in the next two day, decades. But you don't actually, you don't actually read any of that. You, you don't actually, in, in fact, um, you, you get from CNN, Gerardo Cabellos Gonzalez, a professor of ecology at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, is one of the authors of the study. They leave out Paul Ehrlich completely. Paul Ehrlich is the man who, since the 1960s, has been telling us the world is going to come to an end. We were going to overpopulate. We were going to have no more fresh water. We were going to have uh, nothing. We were all going to die. 
and we needed abortion on demand and we needed government to incentivize not having kids. And not a single one of these major news outlets, not a single one mentions Paul Ehrlich. You have to actually go to follow the link with CBS News. And if you follow the link with CBS News, you'll get the opening paragraph. In 2015, Stanford biologist Paul Ehrlich co-authored a study. Five years later, he's back. But you don't get CBS News doesn't mention Paul Ehrlich. Let's see. Does the Huffington Post have a link? Um, A new study. A new study, the Huffington Post. Where does the Huffington go? It goes to the the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, and there it is, Paul Ehrlich. They leave out his name. Why is the media leaving out Paul Ehrlich's name? The dude is famous. He's famous. And yet all of these major press outlets leave his name out. Why is that? Maybe because he's famous for getting so much wrong. So they're playing up the headlines and they're ignoring the fact that Paul Ehrlich is one of the authors of the study. And that man has a repeat history on planet Earth of getting things badly wrong when it comes to future predictions. They would rather you be scared than understand that the guy trying to scare you gets a whole lot of stuff about this wrong. I, I, look, we've got some Georgia news I want to cover and talk about, and and I will when we come back, including Kelly Leffler is uh, signed on to the legislation to designate Antifa a terrorist group. And I'll get there, but I have been overwhelmed with emails and direct messages and text messages and phone calls and calls to the show. Are we in the end times? I, I I can't tell you the number of people who email me and direct message me and, and call me and say, are, 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 is the world coming to an end? Is this, is this, is the apocalypse upon us? Is the second coming coming? I have no idea. That's the theological answer. You're not supposed to know. Uh, and I got to tell you for historic perspective, the people of the 19-teens had the same concerns. You know, in the 19-teens, there was a global pandemic. The Spanish flu killed 50 million people. And the world was at war in a way that had never been seen before. People's lives were being upended. There were riots in the streets. There was murder, there was carnage, there was wreckage, there was death, there was plague. The world seemed like it was coming to an end, and it did not. Arguably, after World War II, you know, World War I was the war to end all wars, and it didn't. It just sparked a second one. And, and the time after World War II through to just a few years ago was arguably the most prosperous point in human history. Hundreds of millions, billions of people elevated out of poverty. I don't know when the end comes. There are certainly things I pay attention to. Here within a within a just slightly more than a century, we're yet in another great global pandemic. We're at a time where where the world seems like it's it's teetering into chaos, and you've got a great secular 
agents hostile to Christianity like China and, and frankly, progressivism in the United States and the Western world, all battling it out, persecuting Christians, Christians increasingly the most persecuted religious group on the planet. And yet the gospel spreads. There are now uh, estimated to be more Christians in China than in the United States, more practicing committed Christians in China than the United States. Christianity is the is the rapid, most rapidly growing religion in Iran. There just seems to be something in the water, and I get it. You've got war and rumors of war. You've got volcanoes and earthquakes you never paid attention to before, random earthquakes in places you didn't even know there were fault lines, birth pangs of something. You've got people at each other's throat. You've got a church, frankly, in retreat. I I, I almost view this as, as a refining moment. Because there are, let, let's just be honest here, there are a lot of people who call themselves Christian and have not darkened the door of a church in a while or opened their Bible. They're, they're cultural. I was talking to a friend of mine this morning, uh, and he was asking me, do, do people in the church really, do, do they really think the president walking across that park holding up a Bible makes a difference, that it does anything? And my answer is no, I don't think it does. I think the people who liked it are the people who are already going to vote for him, but there just there there clearly does seem to be something going on out there in the world right now some some disruption and I think it's spiritual. I think we're dealing with sin. There there will be no governmental solution to what ails us. It is a spiritual uh, problem. It is a problem of sin. We 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 fight the things unseen, and it it's possible to kind of get a sense of the disruption. But there's also a refining moment here in that so many of these people who call themselves Christians or cultural Christians, they spend their Sunday on a bass boat. They don't actually go to church. They, they say they're Christians. They don't know the difference between James and Jude. But they say they're Christians. They, they don't go to church. They don't pray. They don't read the Bible. Uh, it's just what they grew up with. In the same way, a lot of people now use Catholic and Jew as an ethnic denominator. People use evangelical as an ethnic denominator. It means you're, you're Southern and you go to you're affiliated with the church even if you don't go. There's a refining moment certainly happening in the church, uh, where people will be you'll be asked to to show where your allegiance is to to God or to man. But I don't know when the end times come, and and I don't think you should worry about it. You're supposed to trust in the Lord, come what may, and that's what you should do. And and relax about how things are going. God's in control. You know, I've got my Rectech grill, and now I'm seeing you got Cal, Colin Coward and Glenn Beck, and they're all promoting. What do I do to get on the promotion action for my Rectech? <laughs> I look, I, I am a, I am a fan. In fact, I got a uh, from Porter Road up in Nashville. I got an 11 pound brisket showed up the other day, and I intend to put that bad boy on my Rectech and and uh, try. I, I love, I love brisket, and you know, brisket is is so if. I, I've had my big green egg for more than a decade and I, I like my big green honestly. And I, I think I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to put it up on what Facebook marketplace or something and, and sell it. Um, cause I like it, but it's, it's, I didn't want to spend the money on a massive 
new big green egg to hold more meat. Uh, I wanted to be able to do two Boston butts at once instead of once or a Boston butt and something else at the same time. And just can't, I've got the large big green egg. Uh, and the last time I got a giant brisket, a buddy of mine actually as a, as a thank you for doing him a favor, sent me a Wagyu brisket and it was like 13 pounds. It was giant. I had to fold it up to put it on the big green egg. And that was the, really the moment I started thinking, okay, I, it, it's time for me to get a, a different smoker. And so I, I did a lot. I spent a year looking at pellet smokers. Cause you know, I finally got to the point I've mastered the big green egg. I, I've done brisket. I've done pork. I've done chickens. I've done turkeys and I don't use it as a grill. I, I've got a, I've got a very fancy professional grill that I use for grilling stuff. So I just use the smoker and wanted more capacity. Um, I will tell you though, uh, I did pulled pork the other day and I had my Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce that I talked to you guys about, man, uh, you know, not even a commercial here, but let me, let me put in a plug for Mrs. Griffin's. In fact, I used it last night. So there's this, this, uh, Japanese place in town and you know, they give you the, the orange hibachi sauce. And I was like, I, I just, I don't like it. So my wife's using her hibachi sauce or whatever they call it from the Japanese steakhouse. And I had my Mrs. Griffin's with my uh, teriyaki chicken last night. That was actually a really good combo. Um, you should go get your Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce. Um, and it, that, that part, we can call that the ad, but it was good. But nonetheless, um, so I'm, I'm going to put my brisket on my rec tech and here I see, I don't believe Glenn Beck actually smokes. I don't think Glenn Beck uses his pellet smoker. Do, do y'all believe that? <laughs> I'm going to send him an email and, and, and tease him. I, I want in on the rec tech action. Nonetheless, uh, I, I didn't mean to spend that much time on it. There is local news. We should get to the local news. Uh, I have mentioned this before. The issue is accelerating, and it is a terrible, terrible strategy. The Speaker of the House in Georgia, David Ralston, he wants hate crimes legislation. He is downright insistent on hate crimes legislation. David Ralston believes that we need to get it fired up quick and that there should be no dissent and we should just rush it through. This is from Maya Prabhu at the AJC. The effort to pass a Georgia hate crimes bill got another push from one of the state's top political leaders this weekend after civil unrest broke out in Atlanta and other cities across the nation. Following the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officers, Georgia House Speaker David Ralston, who was already pressing the state Senate to approve legislation that cleared his chamber last year, said Saturday he is more committed to hate crimes law than ever following Floyd's death. The legislation, however, faces a difficult path in the Senate where it's currently stalled in committee. I'm sorry, but uh, last I checked, Minnesota, where George Floyd died, it had hate crimes legislation. How would hate crimes legislation have stopped the rioting in Minnesota when they've already got it? Will Georges have some sort of provision saying thou shalt not riot? California, where there are rioting even now this morning as the sun rises there, has hate crimes, has very aggressive hate crimes legislation. How would hate crimes legislation have done it? This is never let a crisis go to waste nonsense uh, from the Speaker of the House, David Ralston. Why is it that uh, progressive legislation needs to be passed in Georgia? Why must we have hate crimes legislation? It didn't stop George Floyd from dying. It didn't stop the riots from happening. Why do we need, and, and it's thought crimes is what it is. It is thought crimes legislation. 
what a hate crime does is that if you commit a, if you do something and cause injury and you have hate in your heart, boy, are they going to throw the book at you? Will they not? If you say, well, I love them. I, I stabbed them to death because I loved them. No, you have hate in your heart. It's in the murder statute. It's called malice. It's already there. You don't need hate crimes legislation because, uh-oh, well, we can't get them on assault because there's no evidence, but by God, we know they were a hateful person. We're going to get them on their thoughts. I am philosophically opposed to hate crimes legislation, and this is ridiculous to say that George Floyd's death should cause us to pass hate crimes legislation when George Floyd's state had hate crimes legislation on the books. George Floyd is not alive because Minnesota had hate crimes legislation. George Floyd died because the police officer should have been disciplined multiple times before and did not get disciplined. I, I am philosophically opposed to this, and it is sick in my mind to take George Floyd's death or Ahmed Arbery's death and say, oh, if only we had hate crimes legislation, this would have never happened. I'm sorry, but George Floyd died in a state with hate crime. And I'm sorry, but Ahmed Arbery was murdered and, and there actually is malice in murder. It goes to your state of mind with murder. I, I'm, I'm just, no, this is, this is bad. We should not, it, it, liberal hate crimes, it, it is a progressive idea. Remember, remember in Texas in, in 2000, uh, I was just really paying attention to politics at the time. George Bush, I just got married. George Bush uh, running against Al Gore. They have this presidential debate and the NAACP is attacking George Bush because of the man, what was it, Mr. Bird, who was tied to the back of a truck with a chain and dragged until he was killed. Uh, and the two white men who killed um, Mr. Bird got the death penalty. They were executed in Texas. And George W. Bush is attacked by the NAACP and said, if only Texas had hate crimes legislation, this would have been prevented. Uh, if only Texas had hate crimes legislation, we could have gone after them more. And George Bush, in a debate, uh, said, um, what, 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 what more could we do? Dig them up and kill them again? They were executed without hate crimes. They were executed. It is progressive agenda, thought crimes. It is part of secularism. It is, you know, it, it is a religious aspect of secularism that you need to punish people's thoughts because there's no God in secularism. And so you must stand before the mob of the state and be punished for your thoughts because you can't be held accountable for the hate in your heart to God. You got to be held accountable with the hate in your heart to, to, to man. And I, I'm philosophically opposed to it. I've got friends of mine who vehemently disagree with me, and I vehemently disagree with them. I do not think the state should be in the habit of punishing people for their thoughts. However detestable their thoughts are, they should not be punished for their thoughts. And what I find remarkable is that the Speaker of the House is the leading opponent in the state of Georgia to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, to RIFRA. And what RIFRA does is it protects people of faith from law, from the government abusing their religion. Uh, it is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that protected the nuns with Little Sisters of the Poor. It is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that protected Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wagon from the Obama administration trying to force them to perform abortions. Uh, 
It is it is uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that's protecting the little sister of the poor from having to pay for other people's abortions and their insurance policies. And David Ralston is vehemently opposed to RIFRA. David Ralston does not want RIFRA. Why is it that David Ralston, the Republican Speaker of the House, wants to advance progressive liberal agenda items and not conservative policy? Why is it that David Ralston wants to advance hate crimes legislation and not religious liberty legislation? What does David Ralston have against people of faith? Is there hate in his heart? If we pass hate crimes legislation, can we charge him with the crime of having hate in his heart uh, against religious people for blocking RIFRA? No, of course you can't do that, but why not? Is it hate in his heart? I guess. Oh, no, I love Jesus. I, I, I go to my church every day. I do declare. I love me some Jesus. I just want those re- religious people to be punished by the state if they refuse to do what the state wants because I love the state more. I mean, that that's David Ralston. He he loves the, the, the power of the state much more than he loves the power of Christ. It's just, why is it that Republicans, why must Republicans in the state of Georgia always cave to the left why must republicans in georgia always sell out their values to a left-wing oh hollywood in the chamber of commerce they want hate crimes legislation they don't want riffle we got to give it to them why that's that's uh, that is a question no one seems able to answer why why must we sell out to hollywood in the chamber when it comes to hate crimes legislation, because you know the Metro Chamber and the Georgia Chamber, they it's so rare for the Georgia Chamber, the Metro Chamber to come out together and say they want something. And they've come out, they said they want we we've got to have this. They also oppose RIFRA. So we can't give that. Well, why must Republicans be horse to the Chamber of Commerce? Why can't conservatives get anything in the deal? You know, I, I I've told friends of mine in the state Senate, if you're gonna go, if you're gonna cave on hate crimes, give us RIFRA and say it's all or nothing. Don't let the speaker pull it back out when he gets to the house. Don't let him do that. You hold your ground. You either give us hate crimes with Riffer or you give us nothing. And by the way, if you if you know your state legislator, you should be taking that position. You fundamentally need to be taking that position. That if you're going to if you're going to cave on hate crimes, you give us Riffer with it, you attach it. You, you amend the hate crimes legislation and you put RIFRA in with it. You give us religious freedom protection if you're going to give us thought crimes. Because then at least you can protect the religious people from when the thought crimes people come after you for having religious views. Will they do it? I mean, this is where this is why having Jeff Duncan as the leader in the Senate is a good thing. Because... He's not up for election. And you see what they're doing is they're going to wait for the legislature to come back until after the primaries. So all these people in the Senate can go out and say, oh, yeah, I oppose hate crimes. I oppose hate crimes. I'm not going to support it. And then the election's going to be over. And they're going to go cave and support hate crimes legislation. And then they're going to say, well, what do you want? Do you want to put the Democrats in charge? You can't put the Democrats in charge. we got redistricting next year. That's what they're going to do. They're going to sell you out after the election. That's why they are waiting until after the primary to go back to Atlanta. They don't want to have to take a tough position. 
So you need to hold your ground now. You need to put the fear of God in your state senator right now. Do not cave on this. You need to tell your state senator, do not cave. And frankly, you should sign up for our activist list. If you text the word ARMY to 33777, I'll put you on our activist list. And I'll send you emails and text messages, and I will make it easy for you to call your state senator. I'll make it easy for you to email your state senator. I'll make it easy for you to reach out to them and say, don't you do this. Don't listen to the speaker. And if you're going to compromise on this, you compromise with RIFRA. Make it all or nothing. You give us religious liberty protection if you're going to give us hate crimes. But preferably don't give us hate crimes. You got to take a stand because they're not. Look, y'all, they have designed this intentionally. I see it coming. They have designed it so that they will not have to come back and hear you because it'll be after the election. They will not be scared of you. And that's why these primaries matter. That's why you need to support Michael Caldwell for the state Senate. You need to support Philip support Philip Singleton for the state house. You need to support Jason Anavatarte for the state Senate. And you need to support Chuck Payne for the state Senate. That that's why these, these people matter. And that's why you need to keep putting people in the state house who will oppose the speaker. Cause the speaker's working with the Democrats on hate crimes legislation. That's not a conservative position. It's not a Republican position and it would not have stopped George Floyd from uh, dying because Minnesota already had hate crimes legislation. For him to drag out hate crimes and say, oh, in light of George Floyd, we got to do this, it, it didn't keep him alive. It's just pathetic to capitalize on tragedy to advance a left-wing cause. That's what progressives do. That's what our speaker does. That should tell you something. Oh, I just got the good news. Uh, scans are stable. Thank you. Thank you for the prayers. Um, we'll do it all over again in three months. It, 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 is, this, it is this bizarre thing with metronomic regularity where every three months uh, my wife's got to go get these scans. Um, and like I was mentioning earlier, so she's got a, it's a genetic form of lung cancer. There's no cure for it. Uh, but this medicine can keep the tumor stable. It's very interesting. I was actually listening to the news this weekend and, and in the newscast they were talking about um while everyone's so focused on the vaccine for COVID-19, there's actually been amazing medical advances in, in cancer, uh, pharmaceutical cancer research. And one of the pills is called Tegriso, and that's what my wife takes. And it's for this genetic lung cancer that she has that keeps the tumors from growing. And typically it works for two years. In some people, it works up to six years. She is almost to four. She'll be at four years in October, and it's continuing to work. And there are some people who see it even longer than that. Uh, work longer than six years. And uh, all uh, six years is basically about the longest that the trials have gone because the medicine's only been out as a clinical trial for six years. So she's been in the clinical trial. Uh, well, and not the clinical trial per se, because we knew she wasn't getting the placebo. We we knew she was actually getting the, the medicine. Um, but we do this every three months. And, you know, we've gotten to the point, it's kind of funny the way the mind works. So we've gotten to this point where we don't actually... Um, we, we don't really build, well, okay, I lie. I'm lying. Um, my wife handles it well now. She gets antsy about the day before, and, and part of that is because she's not having symptoms of anything, and she keeps having the side effects for the medicine. And as long as you have the side effects for the medicine, uh, you're, you're doing okay. And 
she does. And so she's not worried and she starts to get a little frazzled the day before. And you know, she's got to go to the hospital and we got a pandemic going on and she's got to get her blood drawn and she's got to get a CT scan and she's got to sit and wait for them to read the results. And she's got to go to the doctor who tells her whether or not the cancer's growing or not. And if it's growing, there's really with this cancer, there's nothing we can do. So it's either it's stable or it's bad news. There really isn't an in-between. And she does really good and I don't. You know, I, so I was talking, I was talking to a reporter this morning who, he's not Christian. And he doesn't understand evangelicals and their support of the president, particularly when the president, it, it doesn't behave like a believer. Uh, and I just full disclosure, I don't actually think that the president is. And I don't mean to be controversial in saying that. I mean, the president has stood on stage several times and said he's never had the need to repent of anything. And, and then one of the hallmarks of Christianity is repentance. Repent and believe. Repent and be saved. Uh, and repent and be baptized. And and he hasn't. Uh, he hasn't repented of anything in his own words, uh, which I think is, is just kind of the basic foundations for for faith kind of puts him outside. But nonetheless, um, he's, he's in the choice between the Democrats or the president, the president's the one who's not out to get Christians. So a lot of evangelicals will support him. And I was trying to explain this to this friend of mine who's not a Christian, who's a very, you would all know him, a national prominent uh, news person. And he was just kind of expressing his his befuddlement with it. And I said, listen, there, there are a lot of people who they're looking for earthly salvation. They're looking for an earthly savior to protect them from what they perceive as earthly problems, uh, the left, when it's really a spiritual problem. And instead of looking to the Lord to save them, they're looking to Donald Trump to save them at an earthly level. And and in their heart, they, they rationalize, well, I got Jesus for the spiritual stuff, but I need Donald Trump for the political stuff, as opposed to just trust in Jesus. You, you, don't, you don't necessarily need it. And he, I was trying to explain that to him, but hey, y'all, I got to tell you in the back of my mind, and it just is a, a minor moment of confession here, man, it is days like this where I know just 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 trust God. God's sovereign. He's in control. But please, God, can I just get stable scans? Can we have one more, another quarter? And now we'll go to the next quarter, and, and we'll be fine for two and a half months. And then we'll get up in the, the couple of weeks and the run-up to the next scans, and we'll be nervous again and start to fret again and worry again and pace again and and and, and wonder again. And... and you, you, sometimes it's hard. I get it. I listen. I'm I'm living that life. I know it's hard. A, a a guy sent me a note last night, and he said, "My wife and I were about to have twins. Can you say something that I can use to reassure my wife that everything's going to be okay? She believes in God. She trusts in His sovereignty, but she's nervous about the future of the country." And I said, honestly, I'm I'm not really a pes- I'm not really an optimist. I'm more of a pessimist. Uh, but I can tell you this: the country is temporary. The church is forever. Mark Dever said that the other day, and, and uh, man, I, I love that. The 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 country, no matter which country it is, the country is temporary. The church is permanent. And so, where do you put your faith? Where do you put your trust? Where do you put your hope? There are a great many people out there who try to put their hope in this this ideal of America, but man, so many of us could actually put more of our hope in the church. And frankly, 
I think if we're to seek the welfare of the city in which we're in exile and there we'll find our welfare, we could do a lot more to put our trust in our local community and local leaders and local officials and, and local nonprofits than fixating on Washington, D.C. as the savior of all our problems because Washington is not going to save us. It's just another place full of sinners.